0: we we're live. What's up everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Wildlife Cake and Cocktails. We've got a very, very exciting show for the end of October. We're getting a little bit Halloween-y with it. So uh, we're talking spiders and uh, we have uh, Mr. Robert White from the the Queensland Museum, uh, author of A Field Guide to Spiders of Australia. um, And he's actually got a few copies of uh, his fantastic book here to give away, which we'll be uh, talking about later. Uh, On top of that, I have a couple of uh, cocktails in front of us. We have uh, some spider bite martinis which uh, is some uh, cherry vodka that I infused the, uh, the other week. Um, some uh, amaretto, some orange juice, some pineapple juice, with a little bit of grenadine in there as well. Um, and we have a lovely uh, black iced uh, black forest cake with spider web made out of marshmallow on it. So all very Halloween-y. Uh, but let's introduce our guest for today. Um, we will be speaking with uh, Mr. Robert White from the Queensland Museum. He's also an administrator of the Australian Arachnological Society and a host on Jolt Science TV. He's a Brisbane-based scientist, author, editor, photographer, and journalist, as well as a science communicator. Originally from Melbourne, currently a researcher at Queensland Museum's Arachnology Department. Uh, Rob has a passion for spiders, and since 2017, with the help of images from Greg Anderson, authored A Field Guide to Spiders of Australia with CSIRO Publishing. It's the most comprehensive account of Australian spiders ever produced, as well as uh, reviving the Australian Arachnological Society website and newsletter in 2018. Since uh, since 2002 he's also volunteered with habitat restoration projects such as Save Our Waterways Now and he also wrote uh, The Creek in Our Backyard, a practical guide to habitat restoration now in a second edition uh, expanded in uh, 2013. From 2012 onward he's been working with the Bush blitz biodiversity exploration programs and at the 2018 kalula bioblitz led the spider team to discovering 37 new species and several more i understand in 2019 he's recently begun producing and presenting the upcoming web series jolt science tv with sandra tuschinska you can find him on twitter at robert white you can also find the queensland museum at qld museum and you can check out jolt science at jolt science.com.au uh robert how are you doing today g'day Really good to be here. Excellent. How's the uh, how's the cocktail and cake treating you so far? Oh, full marks. Absolutely brilliant. I particularly
1: am impressed by the black icing. You the know. black
0: icing really does it to Uh I, I had a bit of a bad experience with black colored things. I ate one of those black sesame bun burgers um, and they're not actually black. It's just a lot of green food dye. It's well, that's really
1: strange. Yeah. Um, strange yeah. that you ate it. Strange that you found out that
0: Well, I found out afterwards when everything came green. Um, (laughs) But look, thank you so much for joining us for this uh, this spidery episode. And um, uh, we've even got a couple of these fantastic books to give away. Um, So uh, tell us a little bit about um, what led you to writing this um, fantastic field guide to the spiders of Australia in the first place.
1: Well, as you said in the intro, I started with habitat restoration and looked at what was going on in the creeks. I come from a bit of a scientific background you know family has scientists in it and their friends were scientists len webb for example famous uh, botanist who established that gondwana kind of actually existed and wasn't just uh, the re- leftovers of the nor- northern hemisphere. Yeah, right. And so uh, growing up, there was this fascination for natural things. And we used to go down to Mogul Creek, which is very close to here, uh, every weekend. And uh, my father used to catch the fish for his aquarium at home, the uh, native fish, rainbows, blue eyes, and so forth. And I kind of had a love of creeks and then uh, moved to a place which was right on a creek in the Gap. Uh, called up Tim Lowe who is a great nature author and got him to come over and he took us down to the creek and said this is a really brilliant natural area and uh, it's very weedy, should look after it. And so we did. And then I started looking, well, started with weeds first and got to know the weeds. That was probably obvious, you know, what's the bad stuff, what do you need to deal with and then The good plants started trying to learn one of those a day. Then started taking pictures when macro photography came in, around about 2006-7, taking pictures of bugs, and bugs fly away a lot, and spiders tend not to. And so I started taking pictures of spiders. And then I asked Robert Raven at Queensland Museum what these spiders were, and he was pretty good with quite a lot of them. But there were whole groups. that he said, no one knows anything about these spiders. And I said, well, is there a book? He said, no, but you're a writer. You write one.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So in the absence of information,
1: uh, you had to step in. Yeah. And uh, I then spoke to Greg Anderson, who was an expert on a whole group called the Therodeidae, of which there's probably a thousand species in Australia. Maybe there's around about 60 described ones so far. Uh, and uh, he showed me two books, one from Korea and one from Japan, which had fantastic colour photos and were very scientifically accurate. And we had nothing. We had Mass books from 1980 and 1970. Right. Australian Spiders in Colour. I think, and then there was just uh,
0: Australian spiders. Whereas these other countries had these modern guides that you could almost...
1: Incredibly up-to-date, really good pictures. The Korean one, I think it was, I'm pretty sure, had anatomical information that was diagnostic to species. Uh, But most of all, they had live photographs. And so there wasn't anything really um, scientific that had that sort of uh, brilliant photography. And now macro photography was just emerging and making it really easy to get brilliant photos of things. And so there was a whole community growing up. Jurgen Otto, who's uh, the peacock spider-man, you know, the guy that popularised the peacock spider, he kind of started at the same time. And he had a hobby of flying airplanes and so he got his pilot's license because he was afraid of flying. And so he wanted to overcome his fear. But he found it was rather expensive. And uh, when he stopped doing that, he was looking around for something to do with photography. And so, you know, being used to expensive hobbies, he bought the latest and greatest Canon uh, movie camera and started... That's right. And just went in there with the top-end gear and pretty soon he had footage on Catalyst. Catalyst, uh, the TV show, uh, was, was one of the first to show his jumping spiders in action, the male displaying to the female, dancing with that kind of uh, brilliant iridescent fan of the abdomen, waving it at the, at the female, and her maybe responding, maybe not.
0: Well, look, that, that, um, the, the kind of advent and, and you know, Entry of digital cameras and you know DS- DSLRs and things like that, um, it really changed. Um, I-, I guess everybody's ability to access the world of macro photography,
1: right? It hugely changed things, and it was the precursor to basically citizen science, right? Because the academic community kind of really didn't catch
0: up. But photographs are a type of evidence that anybody can kind of capture.
1: Yep, and they're. Compellingly uh, real in the sense of we cannot argue with this. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> and uh, but there was a lot of argument about everything else. Like you drew this uh, this spider's uh, kepler in this way, but I don't by it looks back
0: like. in the day, right? Everything, everybody just basing images and having to hand draw them. Yeah,
1: and uh, scientific drawing is an art and a science as well, and, but it, it it tends to accentuate and make more obvious the things that are important right and so it's not meant to be
0: um photographically super real right you're going to draw the animal from the angle that you want it seen from whereas when you're taking a photograph you're going to take it from the angle that the animal presents you a lot of the time
1: absolutely and so yeah unfortunately we don't get a lot of photographs of the underneath of huntsman spiders uh and the underneath is actually critical in identifying neosporasis is one of the genera of hun- huntsman spiders they have a badge underneath right Not only that, do they have a badge, but they also display it in aggressive kind of facing off moves and possibly in courtship, it's hard to to know. That's one of the things that citizen science can really make a difference with that we have hardly had any work done in at all, and that is biology. The observations of invertebrates generally, not just spiders, the observations of invertebrates in the field, how they reproduce their egg sacs, uh, what happens when the young uh, are born, basically the mating procedures, uh, the hunting procedures, what prey do they have, how do they consume it, how long does it take, how big uh, is the prey compared to the spider, all of these things basically we know nothing about.
0: That kind of ecological uh, information takes a long time to build up and I guess that's where having a lot of hands will make the work a little bit lighter.
1: I think so, and we can see that it is happening. But to be honest, there's a lag between citizen science and science. I mean that that final step, which I took because I had to, more or less, uh, of becoming a scientist in order to write the book. Uh, I started publishing in peer-reviewed journals. I started. Uh, doing descriptions of uh, spiders, doing taxonomy, going on uh, scientific expeditions with the, the federal government. I became a scientist in order to find out the stuff that I needed to know and then that gave me a reputation for being able to uh, be a useful contributor on those type of things. Right. But very few other people uh, have made that transition from enormously, enormously gifted and knowledgeable amateur into professional, professional. Yeah. Uh, but it doesn't take any degree to do that. Everybody's allowed to do it. People don't realise that there's no bar to actually becoming a
0: scientist. Yeah,
1: all you have to do is the work, and yeah. that's what I'm trying to encourage people to do.
0: Oh look, I know, I know I know plenty of people out there who are happy to call themselves naturalists. Yeah, uh, but wouldn't call themselves scientists. Yet they're multiple times published in scientific peer-reviewed journals. And to them, I'm going to paraphrase here, but if you sit, you're a sitter. Um, You know, if you do science, in some way you're a scientist. But um, I guess as a professional, it means, you know, if we're going to be technical, it means getting paid to do science. I guess that is the difference between professional and amateur. But uh, I guess just in terms of the quality of the work, there's a lot of the time very little difference.
1: Professional being paid, yeah, and being an academic, uh, perhaps um, being paid to teach. Uh, being paid to research, uh, being paid to do field work.
0: All of that's important but I think – I guess what matters is the quality of the science that that you're – publishing and presenting
1: yeah and i think the quality of the science uh in many areas and often in in invertebrates is really high amongst the amateur community absolutely and i think that they uh would have no problem at all in making that final step but there's uh there's some something of a barrier maybe it's got to do with confidence in terms of um playing with the big guys uh also, there's a resistance. There has been a resistance, and and that's sad because
0: – is, th- is that a resistance, do you think, to the academic environment I, or, or, or from the academics to
1: – From the academics, oh, definitely. The, the resistance is just a basic paranoia because they have a dwindling funding base, <laughs> <laughs> a dwindling – Grants Grants are hard to come by. <laughs> grants are hard to come by. Everything is really competitive. Uh your survival as an academic um starts to look very shaky and and then what are you going to do go out and help someone else who might prove to the funding bodies hey this person does for free why are we paying you
0: <laughs> and maybe even putting out better quality work um we'll definitely uh, wrap back around to citizen science but um as you mentioned you know there is so much diversity out there not just in, in insects but also in spiders that it's kind of mind-boggling um I guess just in terms of a quick rundown for spider diversity in Australia, there's uh what 15,000 to 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 maybe 20,000 species. Uh, only around 4,000 described in books. Um, only about 1,300 with images, and these are in 78 families, 381 genre, 836 um, uh, of which uh, have you know good descriptions and images um, in the book as well. Um, over, you know, 1,350 images in, in your book in particular, um, you know, and it has all these amazing photographs and, you know, species descriptions, distributions, um, and it's a fantastic, uh, overview and a fantastic ID guide. Um, but we, uh, what we estimate that there might be up to 20,000. Yeah, there are, there are so many that it's mind boggling.
1: And the question that, you know, if I was in the audience, I'd put to me was, how do you know? And... You know, it's it's got to be guesswork, yeah. but it's a calculated guess and it's based on when we look at a particular group and we do a study on that group that hasn't had any modern work done and we see how many new species there are compared to species that were described mostly by the, the German um, pioneers uh, uh, Koch and Keisling who uh, did their work in the late 19th century, sort of 18. Eighty-five to eighteen ninety-nine, something like that. They wrote uh, a five-volume work called *Die Arachniden Australien*, yeah, which right. is a fantastic book and probably still the best. You know, still certainly got the most, not, the biggest number of species in it. Well, since then, very little has been done, and when it has been done, it's been done on groups. So, arachnologists has come along, like Barbara Bear, who's uh, described in a, a great many uh, species in in many different families. Uh, Robert Raven, who's described many, they come along and they start off, they look at the work done in the 19th century and they go out into the field, into the museums, they gather everything that they, they can and then they try to do a big review, say usually of a whole family if they can, like Robert Raven did the swift spiders or the, the swift ant-mimicking spiders called the carinidae. Okay. And uh, and so then they look at how many genera they get, how many species they get, and compare that with what they had before, and inevitably it's like 10 times.
0: Right. So you can extrapolate a bit of a line there from like the amount of effort put in for the amount of species gained and say if we continue to put in a certain amount of effort... This extrapolation line would keep going up at this amount of rate and reach maybe fifteen to twenty thousand.
1: Yeah, that's if the theory holds true right. that Australia is a huge collection of refu- refuges or or is a sort of you know a big aggregation of tiny places that are different from each other. Right. In other words, uh, little pockets of rainforest here, little pockets of desert there, uh, and they've been separated for long enough for the gene flow not to happen and for subtle changes over time to cause uh, adaptive change. And then the, uh, the thing with invertebrates, of course, which is really kind of spooky and Halloween-y, is <laughs> that um, one of the first things to change is their genitalia. And so they lock out their nearest neighbors. Right. Why would they do that? You know, the basic idea is that if you're going to evolve and adapt for a new opportunity, you don't want your cousins to get in on it. You really want to go for it.
0: Right. And you also don't want to be wasting reproductive resources outside of your preferred population mating pool.
1: Yeah, which presumably is a result of adaptation of some other ability to make use of some new resource. Right. Let's face it, I mean, insects, uh, they a lot of them came on board and they're food for spiders. And so you get uh, uh, spiders which are specialists with certain types of insects. Uh, insects tend to be specialists themselves. There are kind of few Truly generalist insects, you know, they all have their preferred uh, f- food, their host plants. You know, I I guess that the house is a really and you know, the cockroach, the American cockroach, really hugely generalist. But uh, there are a lot of specialists,
0: particularly compared to some very direct pollinators and you know things like yeah. magic bullets of like the wasps and figs. Exactly, all of ledgers, those yeah. species
1: of uh, of figs, each having only one wasp, which can uh, pollinate that that particular tree, which is why actually figs aren't generally a weed problem in Australia, because makes sense. You they're don't have viable, yeah,
0: yeah. The pollination is uh, you don't have the specific pollinator that they need.
1: Yeah, so if you get uh, diversity um, of what is essentially prey then you also get diversity of the predator.
0: Right. And, uh, you know, so... I also also imagine, you know, I'm sure there's exceptions to the rule, but spiders probably are not the best dispersers across long distances to uh, mitigate that reproductive isolation. You know, if you've got two populations which are fairly far away, they'll they'll evolve a little bit more rapidly into, into separate species because they're not sharing genes, whereas spiders even kind of fairly close by i imagine the the amount of gene flow from something that kind of either lives on its web or in a funnel maybe not so much for some of the uh or or even some of the i know there's some that drift on the air on their webs and things like this but
1: yeah generally speaking uh especially with what are known as the trapdoor spiders or Uh, primitive spiders, which aren't primitive, actually. They're as modern as... uh, Yeah, well, if they're
0: around today, right, they're they're still current.
1: They're still current. Uh, They just happen to have a very long lineage and a stable lineage and be very similar to
0: what they were 280 million years ago. Very old, successful, and fairly morphologically, I guess, conservative lineage. Yeah, they
1: tend not to uh, uh, travel on the winds. That's called kiting, so that they'll send up a bit of silk. But it has, has been known... Uh, Whereas, yeah, you're right, wolf spiders, they can actually uh, be seen webbing up entire fields uh, because they've landed uh, out of the stratosphere. Spiders can actually kite up into the stratosphere, freeze as spiderlings and then thaw out after they come down and be fine in the new spot. Jesus. (laughs)
0: Jesus. <laughs> we don't
1: we, – we haven't learned how to do that.
0: No, no, no. That's fantastic. And, and, and also I imagine they have a much faster generation time than us large mammals obviously which also yeah, assists in yeah. the faster evolutionary – Our
1: generation time, maybe 15 years, sort of, uh, you know, modern humans, uh, maybe a bit longer, spiders, average of 18 months or there is a very, very famous uh, spider in Western Australia – which has uh, been studied by Leander Mason uh, and she used to uh, help Barbara York, Maine. And uh, they measured one of their spiders uh, and recorded it for 43 years. Wow. One single individual. And basically it wasn't the only one that lived that long. That particular group of spiders um, uh, tended to live... You know, for four decades or so. That's incredible. So yeah, not not all short lived, but mostly eighteen months, um, maybe three years uh, would be the uh, outside limit for commonly. Uh, but you know, nothing compared to the life cycle of yeasts. Mm. They breed really fast.
0: Yeah, yeah. Obviously, those uh, single-celled are single celled organisms. A very fast generation rate. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So I guess all of these are uh, you know. low dispersing, uh, fast generation time. And you've got a selective pressure to adapt to novel environments, novel prey systems. All of this is driving a lot of this diversity, you know, over, you know, over 1,350 images in the book. Um, and, uh, clearly we've got more species since the 2017 Kalula bioblitz where you guys discovered a whole bunch. Yeah.
1: How did we go this year? Well, the, the rainbow beach, uh, expedition this year went to the the sandy wallum uh, of the Fens, which is like great big wetland, very very strange and uh, habitat. And uh, there was virtually no overlap uh, between that and the, the the bits we looked at before. And the other place we looked at was the rainforest. Right. Uh, and so those two habitats got uh, another forty one. New species, but two had been found the previous year. Okay. So we got even more new species the second time we looked. Wow! Even though you know you would have thought, hey, they should have found them already. Yeah.
0: Did, did you did you guys have an increased sampling effort? More people on the ground? Or? No,
1: just uh, really productive areas to look at old growth, literal rainforest a very rare t- um rainforest type there's uh be- rainforest on beaches are not common right right and uh and also this this place called the fens is like kilometers of massive water plants
0: um so there's this uh, acidic melaleuca runoff uh, and uh sodic soil kind of uh, wetlands with the the thick fen grasses and uh, yes,
1: yeah, yeah, and surrounded by uh, gently sloping Banksia woodland. Yeah, uh, we've got a peacock spider there, and uh, oh, wow. I'd have to say though that the sampling efforts they haven't been greater in number, particularly, but they certainly
0: improved in quality. <laughs> People are really getting good, getting into their spiders, getting yeah. better at identifying things, and
1: yeah, yeah, and so the Barmy rainforest was just extraordinary for. Um, things that probably don't live anywhere else, other than that particular rainforest, and uh, the sandy wallum and the and the freshwater lakes, were amazing for that. Also being a very unusual type of habitat, and uh, we got scouted that area on the Friday before the weekend. Um, got to the fens, found a new species within the first 10 minutes. <laughs> so, yeah, there's plenty out there. The thing is, is this important, you know? Is the diversity of Australian spiders important? And is it important that we actually do the work to do the taxonomy to find, to, to name them so that we do, say, for example, have 20,000 species instead of the 4,000 that are currently described? Right. I think, of course, it is because, first of all, if we can't, Communicate with other people about this these life forms by saying, uh, you know, how about this species? How about that species? We can't really communicate at all. Absolutely. So we need facts. And secondly, we don't know what secrets they hold. We don't know. It's obviously about adaptation that we've got diversity, and why it's important. And the whole of Australia is really important. Is Australia's been isolated for a really long time? Things that are happening in the Northern Hemisphere, people map over Southern Hemisphere in terms of predictions. But we're finding more and more those predictions from Northern Hemisphere trends are completely irrelevant.
0: Right, right. And so
1: we've got to know more about Southern Hemisphere uh, plants, animals, fungi, so that we can actually uh, figure out what might happen with a changing world. And the world is changing, and it's changing really rapidly. Uh, we're in the, the probably the largest ever extinction event, and we don't know what's going to happen. And in Australia, we can't even talk about it.
0: Yeah, we we don't even have an inventory to know what we're going to lose.
1: Exactly, we don't know have an in, and we don't know how it manages to survive where it is. We don't know, like it's a dry country um part of the effect of climate change is more extreme weather more drought uh you know wouldn't it be good to know how things adapt to dry conditions yeah I absolutely. would have thought so
0: yeah it, it's always fascinating to you know when, when you look a little bit deeper into the evolutionary histories of some of these things some of the things that you learn unexpectedly I like I remember the uh the mistletoes that um I believe it was Tim Flannery wrote about. Um, so, you know, mistletoes that we see up in Christmas are particularly around Europe, right? And you think of them as kind of a European plant because we don't put them above our, our doors so much for Christmas. Well, it turns out that the, there's less diversity of mistletoes in Europe. The greatest amount of mistletoe diversity is probably here in Australia. Yeah, so absolutely. The the mistletoes are probably Australian. They're, they're probably, or at least of Gondwanan origin.
1: They they could well be certainly the songbirds are yeah you know the songbirds of the world uh, originated in Australia right. and that's the great thing uh, in Tim Lowe's book you know where song began uh, he right. explains the radiation the corvid radiation the crows and the, and the other uh, songbirds and and uh, extraordinary songbirds like the lyrebirds which uh, have that imitative uh quality so in springbrook you can hear a chainsaw but it's not a chainsaw no, it's yeah, a no. live bird.
0: <laughs> yeah incredible what the uh, you know all those different uh, the diversity of birds is capable of um let's bring it back to spiders for a minute so uh, do we have much uh, uh expectations for kalula and I, I guess on top of that i, I just want to wanted to ask just from yourself where in australia do you think the greatest spider diversity is and and uh i guess to extend that globally I think there are hot spots generally, but do you think Kalula might be one of them? <laughs> oh,
1: definitely. Southeast Queensland generally is yeah. a massive hotspot. Uh, it's got the confluence of uh, different weather um, patterns. It's on the junction. Uh, it's subtropical. Uh, it's at the confluence of um, the the uh, coastal, and it's it's uh, had a relatively recent. Uh, chain of Volcanoes. Which yeah, we have got the, that
0: northern part of the Great Divining Range, is there?
1: Yeah, uh, and it's got some remnant stuff which uh, links to uh, southern New Guinea as well. So you've got these patches up the coast, say from Batcoffs, um, northern New South Wales, uh, then southeast Queensland, uh, places around Miriam Vale, Kalaupi, um then... Bundaberg, and then you get a big change up into uh, uh, tropical North Queensland, um, and then you get places like Iron Range, which are almost essentially the same as southern Southern New Guinea. So um, there's the, there's there's pockets of really interesting things going on. I think though that it's obvious the deserts are completely underestimated, right? No, and you know. There's hardly anyone ever looked looked at them. There's there's places in Australia that no human has ever been.
0: I think that it's that sort of Arnhem Land area, kind of uh, mid part of the border between Northern Territory and WA. That's that, that area is one of the least bio bio surveyed parts of Australia. I understand.
1: When I went to the Gibson Desert, it was the hot the you know the red spot on the map that said no one has been here. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Basically, it was the least explored, biologically least explored uh, uh, place in Australia. And we found a really quite large lake um, that no one knew about. Oh, wow. Yeah. It had happened because of 800 mils of rain falling in about 18 hours uh four years previously but no you know it had kind of been recorded uh that rain had fallen but no one knew what the result was and then and it it created ro-
0: an ephemeral lake for maybe yeah oh, five yeah. six years <laughs> yeah well
1: it was uh, it it was there for a good four years then and it was big enough to probably continue for another 15. wow so you know these things can, and with more rain yes
0: you know, that the, thing might be semi-permanent
1: yep yep uh it was very localized though that lake you know and around it were great big salt lakes with camel footprints
0: yeah right, you know
1: going everywhere so that was uh uh we we did actually find more species there than ever before but because of getting better at looking uh and knowing more we we find more, and so the next one we did, which was Laura, which is in far north Queensland, inland, sort of from Cooktown, uh, Cooktown, uh, on, on in the middle of the Cape there.
0: All right, so you kind of a bit north of the Atherton Tablelands and inland from there.
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, north of north of um, the Atherton Tableland, the kind of the northern banana district uh, up there. Well, that was just a bonanza. You know, incredible number of new species, and we looked in the summer. Quite difficult, I can tell you. It yeah, was that really would be
0: very hot and humid.
1: It was incredibly Ooh. difficult, but because of the difficulty, it had never been sampled in summer before. Right. And so we found masses of stuff. I think we found something close to eighty new uh, spider species. Oh wow! You know, and uh, that was uh, Barbara Bear, Robert Raven, uh, and. We had an expert on ant mimics uh, who also collected a lot of stuff, found uh, the northernmost peacock spider uh, up there collected that. Uh, we also had a bycatch. You know, people get pretty excited when <laughs> – <laughs> and uh, the botanists bring us stuff, you know. Oh, the, I'm sure they will. yeah. And the kids. The kids are fantastic in these remote communities. Uh, the kids just – really get the idea so quickly and they know stuff, you know. Yeah, and the elders do too. I remember in the Gibson Desert uh, we were explaining what we were looking for and um, and the old uh, ladies just walked off. We thought, oh, they're really bored with what we're <laughs> telling them. But… 15 minutes, they came back with handfuls of spiders. <laughs>
0: <laughs> they knew exactly what you are after. Yeah, they yeah. knew
1: exactly. And they knew where they were and they knew what we were talking about. And uh, Yeah, that
0: local knowledge is so yeah, important.
1: Yeah, they knew stuff. So there are uh, amazing areas of incredibly low uh, science, you know, or very small amounts of science. Science is hardly done at all um there's other areas where you would expect science to be done that it isn't like greater brisbane greater brisbane is just a wonderland of uh undescribed species it's a terrifically fertile active interesting uh biology and you know scientists just sort of go off to port douglas or um you know, some some remote place right. um And certainly they find new things thinking that um, all the stuff around Brisbane has been looked at. But no, no, it hasn't been looked at at all. In fact, there are certain records from the late 1800s which concentrate only on, say, areas around Emerald. Uh, That was a big area for uh, exploration because of the um the the nearby towns were really booming at that time and that was just where you went you know um uh, Gosford is another area that was explored really early on but there's whole other areas that haven't really been looked at and they're not necessarily remote so yeah i think the the lesson in there is that, you know it's accessible um you know nature is really accessible in Queensland particularly western australia is another huge diversity and uh, monster you yeah, know absolutely basically uh when i've been in western australia in that area uh where the five environmental centers go down from um i can't remember all their names but they they end with a lop you know like um and but northcliffs in the middle and all around that area i couldn't uh even sample to show people how to f- photograph spiders without finding new species, mostly new species. (laughs) Mostly new. You know, probably around about uh, four out of every five the new species. Right. That's bizarre. That's crazy. Uh, So uh, there's a lot of work to to be done. I kind of wonder why more scientists from overseas aren't coming here. Their stuff's boring.
0: I guess they're expecting us to be uh, already doing it. Yeah, Which, uh, you know, I mean, uh, honestly, uh, it's something that we kind of forget here in Brisbane. We're trapped here between the beautiful Mangrovey coastline. We've got the amazing river that runs through it. Off to the, uh, the nearby west, we've got Mount Cutha, Mount Glorious, Mount Nebo, Mount Me, this amazing mountain range. And then not far from that, we get semi-arid zones, the grasslands where we get the um, very recently, dis- uh, I guess, described earless grassland dragons and stuff and in those kind of low plains before you hit the Toowoomba Ranges, and then you get some real arid zone. But all of those... Features and like the woodlands and rainforests all do really mix together to create a huge amount of diversity. It's one of the reasons why there's such huge snake diversity here in, in southeast Queensland. Just for an example, we have got over thirty species. It's um, just
1: incredible, and and so the lack of science. Not forgetting that there are fantastic scientists have been working in Australia, yeah. but you know the lack of s- s- drive for science at a government level at a at a. Uh, a policy level. And locally. It, yeah, and locally, the cutting back of CSIRO funding, you know, the cutting back of pure research because it doesn't have an obvious dollar attachment. This is really kind of destroying, well, it, it's destroying the possibility of finding out stuff that we will need in order to solve the fo- problems of the future.
0: And I guess getting more uh, citizen science involved is, uh, is always a good way to go to, uh, to mitigate that a little bit.
1: I think that we need to get citizen science involved. We need to respect citizens who are scientists and we need to convert them into real scientists. I think we need pathways. Uh, it's about kind of equality, really. Uh, the The science should be an even playing field. Right. Uh, you should be acknowledged for the science that you do. You shouldn't have to have... A PhD, you shouldn't have to be associated with an institution. You should just be able to be acknowledged for doing excellent science. Yeah, anybody could do that. And so I think there should be pathways to make that more obvious and accessible, right? And known, you know, do good things and tell people about them. Yeah,
0: yeah, absolutely. Well, I I guess we've got these uh, undescribed backyard genre, which are sort of accessible, but overlooked. And then you got these elusive, remote, hard to find species in the unsurveyed areas, which maybe have a bit more, I guess, glory attached to finding them going out on this amazing adventure. Um, What's more interesting to you at the moment, the uh, overlooked stuff in the backyards or the the stuff that we know nothing about?
1: I guess most interesting to me is to see uh, how the community takes it up. Um, and so I'm now driven entirely by events, you know, like the Kalula Bioblitz and they've got now funding, they've done a really good job and they've actually become a model, uh, on how to do a Bioblitz really well. Uh, so people can learn from that. So I look at, um, I, I, uh, I go on one of these, if it turns out to be a great place to do work, I'll follow that up, and that's and, and that will create a community, and that community will grow. Um, Liam Bromley is one of the uh, young arachnologists who's you know streaking ahead of me in terms of knowledge <laughs> and ability, uh, just awesome. He's looking after fifty selenopids uh, for Sarah Cruz, who's uh, 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 from California. Yeah, well, wow. uh, because and he's just a young fellow. Yeah, think. yeah, yeah, and uh, uh, well, it's his ability to do that is extraordinary. Yeah, uh, his his knowledge to know that he can do it, and that and and the confidence to be able to do it is also just amazing. Uh, but he's a type of uh, young person um, that po- is popping up all over the place uh kids do get interested in nature uh and the ways of them being rewarded for their interest um kind of need to be encouraged i think uh and uh, uh so i go to try to encourage young people uh to um take advantage of their incredibly good eyesight and their nimble fingers, (laughs) I can't see the things they pick up and put in tubes. Yeah. I can see them under the microscope.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and they're a little bit more nimble and able to scramble under some of that undergrowth. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: And when I tell them, oh, that is actually the first photograph, you know, when I've taken the photograph and identified the thing that I can hardly see. Yeah. um, But I've taken it back and I I report back to them and say, that's the first photograph of that family. Of spiders in wow. australia a whole family now if you imagine uh, your, your knowledge of reptiles is pretty awesome so i mean are you going wh- what would you think of the possibility of encountering a specimen which was an entirely new family of reptiles never oh, a,
0: a whole new family that would be that would be incredible so for, for example that would mean all of our venomous snakes we don't have any, uh, you know, well, okay, we've got a couple of colubrid venomous snakes, but they're not particularly venomous. If you think of all of our dangerously venomous snakes, they're all in one family. Imagine finding another whole family of everything that includes the taipans, brown snakes, death adders, tiger snakes, copperheads, and, uh, pretty much everything else highly venomous with f- front fangs in between.
1: Yeah. Well, every, every expedition I've been on, uh, I've found an example of a new family for Australia. Wow. First <laughs> Yeah, we do have quite a lot of spider families, but only around about 80. I mean, it's not as if we've got 8,000 families. Yeah, right. You know, and I mean, we knew of the uh, the families being here, uh, a record lost, usually, uh, or if not, just bleached out in alcohol, um, misplaced, uh, and we've got no actual evidence. And then
0: the real, the live photograph, bang, suddenly you've got it, you know. Do you, do you see a lot of the evidence for those missing species in your, your phylogenies of these spiders? For, for example, you'll have one area where you've got a whole bunch of species, which are, and there's kind of a fairly even graded morphological and genetic difference. Whereas in other areas, you'll have, like within a family, two very distantly related species where you would expect to see some families in between. And you, they're just not there in the phylogenies because they haven't been found. Sort of a, a semi empty phylogenetic kind of ga- gaps in the phylogeny almost just by looking at the distance between the branch lengths.
1: We get two types of fauna in Australia. Obviously, we get the stuff that's comes from here and is maybe radiated out a bit but basically is only found here, like peacock spiders are only in Australia. Right. And then we get some coming down from Asia, you know. So Across northern, the Torres Strait. Yeah. And Darwin has got some Asian species. So... We, we tend to get gaps where in the northern hemisphere there's a lot of, say, for example, linifides or money spiders. Theoretically, we have very few. On the other hand, they're very small, hard they're, to really, find. <laughs> <laughs> they're hard to identify. No one's done any work on them. And so we probably got quite a few. Right. Uh, I know mm-hmm. that we've got quite a few, but we haven't got, they're the most common or speciose uh family in the northern hemisphere
0: right but they might have been bottlenecked by coming over the torres straits or we just haven't found them
1: i think that there are comparatively very few here right yeah whereas jumping spiders we are king
0: (laughs) (laughs) king of crabs and jumping spiders (laughs) that's right that's awesome well look we should um for our audience just uh go through a bit of uh basic spider systematics just so everybody kind of anybody out there who really is uh intent on getting involved uh, can have a bit of a primer. So uh, yeah, let's talk uh, systematics of spiders. They're um, they're in the phylum Arthropoda, in the class Arachnida. So with all the other arachnids, and in their own order Araneae, um, which is derived from the Greek myth of a human weaver, Arachne turned into a spider by Athena, uh, the goddess of wisdom and crafts, after challenging her to a weaving contest. So even back then, we're looking at webs and stuff like that so i I imagine webs and web design is going to be a big part of spider systematics
1: yeah what uh spiders have silk uh other things have silk too but uh spiders do really interesting things with silk
0: yeah they use them in a much more diverse way a number of different ways that other species don't
1: they started using them uh, to line their burrows uh, to make their retreats and then to lay basically sensory trip lines uh radiating radiating out from their burrows uh so that when something came along the vibration becomes it's like uh an extension of their senses they feel it or sense it rush out grab it and go back and they, they didn't have very good eyesight. Those, uh, the basically, the early spiders the, um, that have to live in burrows with access to moisture. And then you get the Iraniomorphs, which can mo- move freely. Um, they can live in the canopy. They can uh, wander. They're cursorial hunters, some of them. Some of them uh, have... Uh, a web, which is the classic orb web. I think that that that's what fascinates people most of all is that
0: is the orb web. It, is, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah it's a
1: really big yeah. and amazingly beautifully structured uh, web that can catch things that the spider eats, like uh, moths in particular, but also it can catch a double-barred finch. Right. There's a picture in my book of a double-barred finch being consumed by a, a golden orb weaver. Wow. And, uh, you know, that's a pretty big prey for a spider. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And uh, there are two types of spiders that make these big orb webs. One of them, they just live there and the, the web persists. The other one, they actually consume the web every uh, morning and then go off and hide in a nearby uh, leaf retreat, and then each evening rebuild the web again. Wow! So they're your classic garden orb weavers, and they're the ones that people uh, don't expect to walk into when they're walking around the house at They're in night. a new place every day. <laughs> <laughs> they're often in the same place every day. All right. You know, but they do learn uh, if if their web is persistently disrupted, they do learn to move it. Uh, into a place out of the the mammalian traffic, right? You know, us kangaroos <laughs>
0: <laughs> and anything else,
1: <laughs> and anything else. You know, pigs. Uh, the traffic that's going to wreck their webs, they learn to to get out of the way. Um, so they 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 like the fact that spider silk is so strong as well is just amazing to people. You know, um, it's about as strong as. Uh, in terms of fibre, uh, uh, as Kevlar. Yeah, right. So it's stronger than steel, uh, and it's stretchy, and uh, it it uh, it's strong. Its strength doesn't depend on its diameter, which is really weird. Anyway, I just read the paper on that, so uh, I could go on about that, but <laughs> <laughs> uh, we won't. But yeah, the that big group, the araneomorphs, some of them gave up making web snares and the jumping spiders in particular, use their eyesight. Right. And jumping spiders have this kind of strange thing where they have a telescopic um, system within their eyes where the, the two lenses, one at the front and one at the back, can move independently. So they and have a
0: focus mechanism in there.
1: They have an enlargement mechanism. They wow. can magnify what they're looking at four times. Oh, so
0: it really is telescopic it's vision. It's telescopic vision, yeah. yeah. Wow.
1: And that's just awesome. And, of course, they have some of the most extraordinary behaviour of all spiders too. Portia, which is one of the spiders in North Queensland, it hunts other spiders and it plucks their webs in order to imitate prey. You know? <laughs> the wow. spider comes out and they're whack. So it's the, a
0: spider hunting spider.
1: A spider hunting spider, yeah. Wow. And that's the, fascinating. There are a few. What you were saying before, though, is interesting in terms of are there gaps in the systematics? There, there are... Many instances of convergent evolution, uh, probably more, I would say, than any other place in the world, where uh, incredibly different lineages of animals have ended up looking almost identical and and acting almost uh, identically. In other words, they've evolved to take advantage of a particular biological niche.
0: Right. So a similar selective pressure, and they end up uh, yeah, evolving but, and adapting a similar morphology, basically yeah, parallel.
1: Yeah, and completely um, without reference to 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 the other one that's also done the same thing. So it's it's as though a, if you can imagine a starfish uh, being the result of a, of a cat on one side and jellyfish on the other you know that distant you know well not obviously in terms of real biology but two very distant
0: lineages end up looking very similar
1: and behaving uh almost identically yeah yeah. almost (laughs) identically and it's really hard to tell them apart until you realize what it is about them that is distinctive and they can't conceal usually their genitalia you know they that's too embedded their eye structure is another thing Uh, Eye structure is a really good way of separating large groups of spiders. That's kind of early on. That gets locked down, you
0: know. Well, let's talk a bit about that spider morphology. So we've got the cephalothorax, which is the head and the torso kind of put together um, all in one bit. And all of the eight legs come off that. That's right, and uh, we've got the abdomen attached to the back of that, obviously yeah. with the uh, silk spinnerets sticking out the back. That's right. Now, on females, you know your, uh, <laughs> spider
1: biology, you know, Oh, your oh, 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 oh a little.
0: Um, so, females on the underside, you flip them over, and on the bottom of the abdomen, not the cephalothorax, you'll find the epigyne. Yes, which is the female reproductive organ.
1: Yeah, basically between the two lungs, which are book lungs, which are basically very l- simple lungs. I'm simple sorry. lungs, like like. Pages in a book, leaves in the books, and uh, the the trapdoor spiders, they have four uh, book lungs, and the araneomorphs have two book lungs, but also the morse can have another breathing apparatus, you know, like a, a which 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 Sometimes draws
0: back towards the spinneret.
1: <laughs> yeah, draws basically can draw oxygen directly from from the outside world right. uh, into tissues. Uh, kind of a backup system.
0: Yeah. And so male spiders, they have their reproductive parts, the pedipalps, on the front of the face near the chelicera, near the actual jaws.
1: Yeah, that's really weird, isn't it? I mean, they're called secondary sexual organs and this takes a bit of time to get your head around. Basically, their sexual organs are more or less where the females are, but they use their pedipalps and in particular a kind of finely structured organs which store the sperm to kind of like suck up the sperm from their genitalia, their their true genitalia, which is on their uh, abdomen, more or less where the female's is, and charge it up at pressure, ready to insert into the female and squirt in. Wow. But the female is pretty clever. She can store that sperm in different parts of her internal um uh genitalia so she can
0: choose when and whether it, or not to fertilize exactly isn't that crazy that's incredible yeah how, so how I, I i know that some snakes can do this because they had a they had a coastal taipan that was in captivity for three years and then it gave birth and they did some genetics on it and uh, there was multiple paternity so it wasn't – she did, She wasn't you know, cloning herself. She wasn't parthenogenic. Yep. She had stored sperm from multiple partners um, for at least three years because that's when they got her out of the wild. Yep. Um, do you know how long spiders uh, – do we have any idea how long spider – female spiders can store sperm for?
1: No, we don't because we don't have enough um, study on some of these older spiders. But right. uh, we know that those – uh spiders live for a longer time uh molt when they're adults and that's how they manage to survive but most female spiders do actually not molt after sexual maturity? Right. They, that's it. They get to sexual maturity
0: and they're done. Uh,
1: and they're done. And they re-produce. so longevity
0: from there gets a bit harder to.
1: Yeah, and that's how those uh, Western Australian ones actually live for years is that they continue to molt after they've reached sexual maturity. Now, how long they could um, store sperm for? I think probably for a pretty long time, months at least. I think that 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 is probably actually in the literature. But if you think of the redback spider, that's a very uh, adaptable spider which has a lot of evolution concerned with surviving harsh environments. It can, can survive ice and snow. It can survive searing deserts.
0: Yeah, great heats and drought as yep.
1: well. It also eats the male. Uh, just for a bit of, you know, extra nourishment in order to have a reasonably successful um, bunch of eggs which are going to survive. Uh, he loves it. So they're having sex and uh, he's inserting his petty pulps, which is like basically little boxing gloves on, on appendages, yeah, around his mouth or near to his face, if you could <laughs> call it that. Yeah. Uh, and he then of sun- somersaults sun- sun- towards her mouth So that the end of his abdomen is actually resting against her uh, mouth parts.
0: Right. So he presents her a meal, which is. Yeah, basically.
1: And the way spiders eat, which is something that always horrifies people, is they actually dissolve their food and then slurp it up. up. Yeah. Yeah. So their digestion is, uh, um, well,.
0: Partly external, at least. Partly yeah. external. Yeah. So,
1: so she starts um, vomiting digestive fluids onto the abdomen of the male, and he's going, "Oh,
0: baby, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> a perfect." It's how it's how a good Friday night goes.
1: That's right. And sometimes the male goes, "This isn't feeling so great," and then sort of so breaks off and kind of escapes, getting a sense of, "Hey." I, getting, think, I think I was being eaten. I, I,
0: think
1: I think I'm being eaten here. This is
0: really weird. Yeah, it's very conflicting. But,
1: but they come back. Yeah, right. And they do it again. Ex- extremely conflicting. Yeah, that, that's right. So uh, this is obviously developed for success for yeah. that particular animal. Yeah. And um, – The idea of being able to fertilize your eggs when the conditions are right is another adaptation, which is really quite similar. Yeah. Um, So there's a lot to learn from that. I think humans... If they had t- telescopic eyesight, they wouldn't need reading glasses. If they, <laughs> if they had fertility, fertility control of their own uh, bodies and decided, oh, no, I can hang on for a couple of years with this sperm, it's, you know, I'm nourishing it, probably yeah. actually benefiting from being in my body rather than wearing <laughs> whatever, whatever he's doing with it. <laughs> That's right. And, and uh, a whole bunch of other things, uh, having silk, Uh, which can take you into the stratosphere, being able to freeze and then thaw again, all these kind of things. Spiders are pretty crazy. But the craziest of all, of course, is uh, the one on the cover of my book, which uh, has eyes which are nearly 2,000 times as sensitive as human eyes. Yeah, wow. And uh, because they're so sensitive, they're useless in, in the daytime, They they would be kind of like burnt out by the amount of light that there is in the daytime. So every morning they digest the light-sensitive membranes, what we would call the retinas. They actually digest them and their eyes become blind. Their big sensitive eyes become blind during the day. And then every evening, because they're going to need them in order to see their prey to cast their net over it uh, at night, which is how they, they catch their prey, every evening they grow them again.
0: Wow. Well, so my understanding of uh, photo bleaching of uh, retinas means that a lot of the time you've got a lot of constant oxidization going on and I guess doing that when you don't actually need the vision would be energetically expensive. So they save it for nighttime and, and, and instead just absorb it and use it when they need it. Is that, is that what uh, you suspect might be happening?
1: I think that there could be a way, I'd never thought of it actually uh, from that point of view, but that's a good point. Um, the damage of a light-sensitive membrane during the day when something it's be- so sensitive, yeah, and it's going to want- be
0: an energetic cost.
1: That's that's right. Yeah, it's not only that they don't need it; it's that it would be a disadvantage to have it exposed.
0: And they're actually saving energy by. <laughs> S- saving energy by absorbing and then regrowing the, those pigments. Yeah, obviously.
1: And, redons, yeah. Um, and, and, and S- St. Andrew's cross spiders, uh, for example, do consume their, their silk, the silk which is, um, you know, uh, their, their web to catch animals, but also the stabilimentum, that's the uh, decorative part that yeah. makes the cross. Yeah. And they, they actually um, consume that at particular times when they need that and so protein of silk is actually – can be um, a supplementary food source.
0: So maybe not surprising that they have these, I guess, efficiency mechanisms for their,
1: yeah, for their sensitive yeah. eyes. Yeah, well, completely different from the jumping spider, which, of course, only uses its vision in the daytime. Yeah. Its uh, vision is about the same as ours. Both the dynopidae the ogre netcasters, can see the moon quite distinctly uh, – um as as well as jumping spiders wow uh other animals not so much i mm-hmm. mean you know certainly not other invertebrates
0: yeah yeah definitely even vertebrates for sure um so th- there's a whole lot of uh, uh systematics there that we still need to get to but just uh, just basically um within our order Aranae, there's two suborders mesothelae and epistothelae am i saying that right well, they kind of don't rate in Australia because right. we've mostly got the epistothelae uh, in the infraorders, myaglomorphae, yeah, and Araniomorph.
1: Yeah, basically, we think of the order and then we think of the uh infraorders, and basically, or the, some sometimes called suborders, right? The myaglomorphs or the myaglomorphae,
0: which are ancestral.
1: Which um, whose origins goes back 280 million years, maybe 250 million years, uh, and then the iraniomorphy, which would have come along a bit later and then diversified enormously as they're pre-diversified. Uh, and the opportunities for a free-ranging iraniomorph are, like, enormous. Right. Of course, like, when they developed, you had... Uh, horsetail ferns and you know other
0: stuff very very different rainforest ecology here yeah, the,
1: yeah. and limited and the, the the plant fungi life diversified on the planet uh insects came along massively diverse spiders were there already and went You hoo this is really cool. new <laughs> niches everywhere yeah, yeah more opportunities and um and because they have a short lifespan and because they're tendency is to radically change in order to adapt to new opportunities as well as obviously being killed off by um unfavorable conditions right uh they would what we call speciate they would actually turn into different forms which we call species
0: right so that's why now in the uh the myaglomorphs, you know we've got our uh funnel webs and our tarantulas and trapdoors and things like that whereas in the araneomorphs there's a bit more diversity the uh, you got the spirals and the orb weavers and the crab spiders and uh cobwebs and jumpers and huntsmen's and all this other stuff
1: that's right you know basically Basically, you've got spiders that use webs as a snare, a um, lot of those and in a lot of different ways, but lots of different types of webs. You've got like the Therodeity, which are your, includes your redback. Their web is kind of like a cobwebby web. And you've got uh, your house spiders, the, the black house spider. That's a kind of like a messy web. Um, uh, the the white tail spider, by the way, Eats the black house spider. Uh, <laughs> the white tailed spider is completely harmless and never has been a problem. Uh, had an incredibly bad reputation for causing uh, wound
0: and very necrotic bites or yeah, so uh, called right. necrotic bites.
1: Yes, and necrotizing arachnidism is the term. Uh, basically, the flesh eating wound as a result of the spider bite. Complete and utter bollocks. Really? Never true. Yeah. Um, the blackhouse spider possibly could result in an annoying bite that could be uh, could hurt or, or itch for a week or so. But uh, neither of them have the power to give you any substance which causes,
0: Necrotizing fasciitis. (laughs) That's that's right. Yes,
1: basically, your arms and legs to 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 rot off. Yeah. Uh, Despite the fact that a lot of doctors believe that they 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 can and do.
0: So, where where does did you have any idea where that myth comes from?
1: Oh, I know exactly where it came from. (laughs) It came from uh, a medical researcher um, called Stuart Sutherland who wrote a paper saying um, we've looked at these people who have got. necrotic wounds and they've reported spider bites and this is the culprit the white tail spider they didn't actually have any kind of genuinely smoking gun
0: just Uh, a little bit of local just distributional correlation yeah Yeah.
1: that's right yeah a little exactly a bit of local distributional correlation and that's all oh in other in other words Uh, It could be
0: any of the other species that shares that same distribution or it could be something else.
1: It was none of the other species uh, that shared that distribution. It was dirty fingernails.
0: So, you get an itchy something and you scratch at yep. it and you cause an infection from your own. Yes, hand. that's right.
1: right. And uh, Wash your hands, people. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Should have been one of the Ten Commandments,
0: don't you reckon? Probably number one. Yeah, wash your hands before you touch your face. And, <laughs> yeah, that's uh, or, right. Or scratch at wounds on your body. Yeah, exactly. Do, you do know, not give yourself skin uh, infections. Yeah, that's right.
1: <laughs> and so, what they found when they were investigating this uh, in 2002 and then later with Jeff Espister down in New South Wales. Uh, trying to find the truth of this story was, in fact, that doctors were missing important uh, bacterial infections, basically gangrene, um, both types of um, uh, strep, you know, uh, uh, golden staff, and all these things that actually were causing serious infections, they were missing them because they went, oh, that's the white tail.
0: Yeah, yes, so yeah,
1: bad, right. m- bad medicine, bad led, science.
0: Led to more issues than. Yeah, 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 yeah.
1: So there is one spider which theoretically could cause a flesh-eating wound, and that's the recluse spider.
0: Brown recluse, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, which is uh, Loxosceles, which is, oh, I can't even remember the name of the family. It's not a very common spider. Sicariidae um, or something like that. Give me my book. I'll look it up. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. And, um, well, it's in the obscure section, so uh, that gives you an indication of of, uh, of how well it's known. Um, but, uh, and we have
0: them here in Australia, obviously. We
1: have them in… Uh, South Australia, It is I, the yeah. yeah.
0: Well, my, there you go.
1: My memory's better than I thought. <laughs> and the cocktails uh, haven't But don't haven't worry, we too. have a book. <laughs> 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 uh, I actually do look it up. Quite a bit,
0: and are they are they South Australian from the uh, yeah? They the were top found.
1: They're um, blow-ins, so they're cosmopolitan. Right. They come from elsewhere other than Australia. They're yeah. they're not Australian native spiders, and they were first found in Adelaide. Yes, in right. one of the sub North Adelaide, something like that. Uh, but we have now found them all across to the west of Adelaide, all across uh, South Australia, and probably into Victoria as well sort sounded like in Border Town, in Morgan-on-the-Murray. Um, there's the one in Atlas of Living Australia is from Morgan. That's from one of the, the guys in the spider community, Mark Newton. Uh, that's his record. Uh, the thing is that they appear not to bite people. Right. So um, while it is possible that you could get um, a necrotic wound... Uh, first of all, you have to be bitten and then they have to uh, administer enough of the ne- necrotic substance, right. necrotizing substance, in order to actually affect you. And they don't uh,
0: seem to have that And ability. they don't seem
1: to have you because in New York, there was actually a cellar, sometimes known as cellar spiders as well. Uh, there was a, um, a cellar with 2,000 of them uh, and uh, no one had ever been bitten. All yeah, right. Yeah, but people had been going in and out of the cellar quite a bit. Yeah. There's a lot of myths like that.
0: There is, yeah. I mean, when it comes to uh, bitey, venomous things, there's a a little bit of misinformation out there. A little bit of fear always helps that hysteria go wildfire.
1: Yeah, yeah. It seems that, um, what is it about the fear fascination thing? Do you find that with uh, snakes as well, that... Along with the fear, some people are genuinely incapacitated by their fear of spiders. Absolutely you know uh, And I presume the possible, that possible that's possibly true for snakes as well. Absolutely
0: we, we, de- we definitely get regular call-ins for people who have diagnoses of uh, anxiety, ophidiophobia and things right. like that.
1: Okay. Yeah. well, w- what about the fascination? It always seems to come with it, you know that, that um, Robert Ray's sort of
0: inability to take your eyes off it a little bit.
1: Yeah, I suppose. But it can convert to a real interest. Absolutely, yeah. Um, Lynn Kelly became very interested in spiders after she was so incapacitated with the night terrors that she decided to seek help from Alan Henderson at the Museum of Victoria and he cured her arachnophobia. It's not actually hard to do. It's relatively easy A little bit of exposure <laughs> and, yeah, in a <laughs> yeah, safe way. Yeah, that's right. You kind of get there. That's right. Yeah. Um, and Robert Raven, uh, he, he claims still to be arachnophobic I can't – I've seen him actually handle spiders uh, and he exhibits no arachnophobia at all. <laughs> uh, but he claims to be arachnophobic. Um, he said that he, like, he could be in the field uh, and one time he was in his tent and a big huntsman dropped onto his face and he screamed and ran out of the tent. Now, that's Well, that'll
0: happen to almost anybody. You know? Exactly. That's just, uh, <laughs> that's just shock of the unexpected animal on your face. Yeah? That's right. If a big I mean, possum fell on your face, yeah. he'd be possum phobic. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. scratched badly.
1: Absolutely, yes. I think that... Uh I don't think we can call that arachnophobia.
0: No, No, I guess in terms of snakes, uh, it always comes back to me. I forget the name of the researcher, but she had this fantastic uh, idea of uh, snake detection theory, which was the fact that there was snakes before there was uh, ground dwelling primates. So arguably there was some, probably some snakes that were hunting our uh, very early ancestors, even before we came down out of the trees. And thus the ability to pick out the pattern of a snake and respond in a Fearful way might have kept some of those small mammalian primate prototypes alive, and that may have carried on down to you know into our early ancestors, and you know help uh, maybe may have been a you know useful survival tool. Seems reasonable to me. So I... yeah, out of that you get the snake detection theory, and uh, it's very interesting. But it's some amazing it, studies that I does think it work
1: it, for the spider detection theory? I
0: don't theory? know. Um, I remember there was some elements of it that crossed over in, um, in one of the response experiments. But again, I think that might be more to do with, uh, I guess the revulsion factor towards insects and things that people find creepy and, and, uh, potentially, uh, with pathogens and diseases associated to them rather than actual spider bites.
1: Yes. I think that could be true because a lot of people are pathologically afraid of cockroaches, you know, and, um, cockroaches are not venomous yes you know but they um basically the parent exhibits the fear disgust or face and it uh creates a reaction which is in the child which is to back away drop the thing you know stop doing what they're doing yeah and um and develop a fear immediately themselves of this thing so it's a persistent uh it's an embedded it's like turning on a switch, you know. Yeah. I'm now suddenly afraid of spiders. And so the next one I see, oh, I'm not going to forget that. It's it's bypassed my conscious mind. Yeah. I'm afraid of that. So there's an advantage in that. And certainly perhaps if uh, you've got disease factors, maybe it's the disease factors that are actually in that group uh, of mm, disease vectors uh spiders kind of get get wrapped up accidentally
0: yeah i I guess what's the selective advantage of like separating out the arachnids from the rest of the potentially disease causing insects and invertebrates too hard yeah exactly
1: yes yeah Yeah, it wouldn't make sense yeah so it's basically it's a blanket thing um it is curious that if your fear is switched on by spiders it's unlikely it can be switched on to the same degree for anything else, right? And so, people who are—we've got one big
0: spot for our main fear. That's right, <laughs> exactly. You know, if, we, if, you, if you can fill it with spiders, or you can fill it with with snakes. Yeah, with snakes, or with you know, climate change, or you know, any of these other like climate change is probably the most serious one that you could fill it with. Or you could fill it with buttons, or uh, yeah.
1: as in Steve Jobs, who was uh, deeply afraid of buttons, um, you know, and the head of Apple. Uh, would only wear skivvies which is a bad
0: a bad uh, <laughs> uh,
1: choice really not not the ideal look I think No. A- anyway
0: um, look uh, we got so much more that we could uh, you know talk about here in terms of uh, cryptic species and, and spider diversity but I can see we're probably going to have to do a part two I think we? we might have to look let's uh, uh, before we get on to new research let's quickly uh, just uh, talk a bit more about citizen science which is obviously helping so much to discover um, you know spiders of Australia um, I think quest game and some of the young naturalists and uh people out there using things like i naturalist are, are doing such a fantastic job um but as you mentioned there's some of those barriers to becoming a professional scientist is that the only place where you think citizen science kind of falls short at the moment or is there any other areas you think we could improve our our citizen science chops as australians well Quester
1: game is interesting i've worked with those people uh kind of from the beginning phenomenal
0: and- game and phenomenal uh, yeah, biodiversity, discovery, citizen science app.
1: Yeah, and in a real encourager and very clever the way that it combines game theory with, with with you know, discovering wild um, animals. And it's, its rule is it has to be, you know, actually wild. It can't be, you know, oh, I'm going to take at the zoo, a, yeah. a picture at the zoo or of, of Bindi, for example, mm. you know, the puppy so uh it gets people out there and there is a, a nature deficit uh which is a real problem in a kind of like the computer mediated world uh which has a result of not ground truthing stuff oh, um, right. uh, and if if you're not ground truthing you're not truthing and if if you're not truthing you're not sciencing. you're not, you're not <laughs> sciencing, but also you can't tell the difference between uh, something that is real and something that people tell you is real right like in other words you know Donald Trump saying that he's German when it's completely rubbish or that Barack Obama was was an uh, you know uh, Arab which he's not uh, you know the uh, uh, the 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 uh, aspiring to a respect for truth is an important thing, a positive thing that things like Questor Game are doing. And they, but they're now running up against the that barrier that I discussed before, which was um, I need to go that one step further. Uh, and now the the the, the Quest of Game people who use me as their spider expert or not use me, I mean, I'm d- I d- <laughs> delighting. Do, do it happily, yeah. Uh, <laughs> do it happily because uh, it, it keeps, it, it it strengthens my chops. It shows me really interesting things that I'm really s- quite surprised by.
0: Yeah, and you get to get out there and be part of the whole yeah, process. Yeah, yeah.
1: But they're uh, often saying, can we get to a species for this? And I say, can I look at it, at it under a microscope? Because there's a limit. Yeah. To what you can f- see from a photograph. Absolutely. Uh, it's not that hard these days to put a little lens on a uh, iPhone camera and get a bit more of a close-up picture and maybe get a close-up of the palps, and maybe uh, put it in a specimen tube and see if you can get a picture of the epigyne, and then bingo, I can give you a lot more information about what it really is. Um, so... Uh, There's
0: some fantastic uh, plug-in digital microscopes that fit into uh, iPhones and things like that. Absolutely,
1: yeah. And there's some uh, types of cameras that take um, a a microscopic view in in layers. Yeah, right. You know, it was kind of like basically 100 layers so that you can get a a virtually 3D or everything is in focus type of view. Yeah, wow. And so um, I think what citizen science has to do is encourage – uh, people to make more use of the technology and to get better at the science. It's not just a bird watching app, you know.
0: Right. I, I guess uh, the, one of the big points there is uh, there's two parts to science. There's the data collection and then there's the data analysis. And I suppose it's that second part where, uh, you know, citizen scientists probably need a bit more help. Anybody can go out and collect data if they're given the correct uh, methods to go and do it but the downstream analysis and working out the results, that's probably where they maybe need a bit more uh, assistance and expertise at this stage?
1: Yeah. They need uh, help with um, a closer look. They need to – the um, when I look at something, uh, I look at the live animal, I photograph the live animal, I try to observe as much as I can about the way that it moves and uh, – anything else that is possible with an animal in captivity if i'm out in the field i'll try to find uh it you know evidence of its biology what's it doing out there how does it live you know what is it uh how how does it breed and all those sorts of things but when it comes down to it the real task of identification uses the microscope yeah you know but or a powerful hand lens, you know, like a, a loop. A field a tw- lens, yeah. Yeah, a 20 times loop, which you can actually, you know, you can buy those kind of watch repair glasses from eBay. They cost like $5. Yeah. And then you pull them apart and it, and then you've got two, two real... <laughs> good little hand lenses that
0: you can take out in the field. That's that, great.
1: That's right. And if you've got a nice uh, clear glass tube to put the thing in, you're completely safe and then you can bring that uh, up to your eye with the and look at it 20 times magnification, see a lot that's going on. Why not then actually do a drawing?
0: Yeah, right. You
1: know, those are the thought, sorts of things. Now, when you're submitting, you can take a picture of your own drawing and say, this is what I drew. Why yeah. not? You know, and so, yeah, it's the conversion from citizen science to true science. It's not far away, but they're not kind of even thinking about that.
0: And you probably need a little bit of bridging of the gap.
1: I think we need to accept that the knowledge gap is huge. Yeah, okay. For uh, Australia in particular, Southern Hemisphere in general. Um, there, uh, if, if someone reports a vagrant bird... Of what the eight hundred uh, species of birds that are known to either live in Australia or visit Australia, um, uh, birdos will bird
0: life is all over it. Yeah,
1: yeah, they're just bang there. You know, people will jump on planes to see this thing. You know, Absolutely. and there isn't um, the, the, uh, the the there isn't anything really massively new. Um, you're not expecting a new bird. For Australia, I mean, you're a vagrant, yeah, sure, a seabird, sure, but basically we know what the birds are. We know more or less what the butterflies are. There's only yeah. about 400 species, even though they're no different from moths.
0: So do you think the uh, the challenge is off-putting? of The, oh, the no. diversity in the no. species? Because for me, that's what makes it such a fascinating thing to get into, <laughs> right?
1: Exactly. I don't think that the, the, the lack of knowledge is, is off-putting um i took on i took that lack, lack of knowledge as a motivator right but most people would go oh bloody hell that's too hard
0: yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well there's two types of people um anyway um <laughs> yes. we, we we better move on uh and get on to our uh, new what research are those two types of people by the way <laughs> <laughs> well some of them are motivated the other ones are not I would say, oh yeah. yeah i'd say uh,
1: you know i'd say that There's a little bit of OCD in all of us, um, but in science, there's quite a bit.
0: (laughs) (laughs) There certainly seems to be uh, no shortage of it, that's for sure. All right, let's move on to new research, Um, and uh, we're going to have to fly through this, uh, starting with Kilmar and Rodriguez from 2019. Miniature spiders with miniature brains forget sooner. This is from Animal Behavior 153, 25 to 32. So a little bit of background. Miniature animals have tiny brains and should therefore face cognitive limitations. There is little supporting evidence for this expectation. However, we focus on memory information content and retention time, which likely subtend a broad range of cognitive abilities. Our study species, a web spider, allowed us to make a simple assay of working memory. How spiders search for prey, they have captured and lost. So they, uh, the authors used an ontogenetic approach, taking advantage of variation in body size and concomitant variation in brain size across instars of full. Ph- Fulcus phalangioides, cellar spiders. Yeah, fulcus, basically daddy long legs. Yeah, wonderful. So they were collected from uh, around the University of uh, Wisconsin Milwaukee between 2014 to 16, housed in clear plastic chambers in a walk in environment uh, that was kept with a you know, specific time, uh, light time, and uh, environmental regime. Uh, they were allowed to build a full, full web, usually around two days. And then you introduce a cricket on a crane to a part of the web. Uh, The spider finds the prey, and then you use a little pipette to blow uh, the spider away from its prey item and kind of drive it back to the corner, just with little puffs of air. Um, And uh, then you retract the cricket crane, and you time the search behavior, which is uh, uh, obviously by the time they stop searching, they've pretty much forgotten about that prey item. Uh, They also use uh, the pipette to keep the the spider cornered for different periods of time to see how long they retained the memory of where they found the cricket. Um, And they, of course, controlled for sizes satiation by feeding them at the same rate, same size, blah, blah, blah. Uh, They also sometimes used a toothbrush to re-stimulate a prey response on the web. Uh, to discussion, it's, it appears that the uh, small and most highly were the most highly motivated to search for lost um, uh, items, and they had the clearest discrimination in prey size. However, the delay time between memory formation and memory use, with the, with the delay time, um, search time also decreased more steeply in small spiders than large. So as we increase the delay between memory formation and use, uh, search time decreased more so Uh, More quickly so for small spiders than large spiders. The effect size of this difference in steepness was large. For instance, to see a 50% reduction in search time, it would take a delay of approximately three minutes in small spiders, but approximately 11 minutes in large spiders. Uh, also, small spiders perform less additional searching after their primary bout. Retention of working memory, uh, but not its content, appears limited in small spiders with small brains. Uh, this suggests that animals evolving miniature sizes sacrifice not. Uh, the ability to perceive and acquire information. Rather, they uh, they sacrifice the ability to retain information over time in working memory, which may limit the ability to relate behavioral decisions to their consequences. Um, fascinating stuff. Great way to study spider memory with just a little pipette and a crane on a string. Um, uh, this study uh, setup has obviously been used before um, uh, for a, a number of different studies, um, including some of the stuff that they kind of controlled um for in this behavior in uh, some of the earlier work by, I believe it was uh, Kilmer. Um, Yeah, interesting stuff. Uh, Obviously, smaller brain um, maybe has a smaller, not just memory bank, but memory formation capability. Interesting way to
1: uh, spring the secret question Mm. onto the uh, scientist. Well, I think that there's a lot of issues here. It's not just the size of the brain, it's just what we understand as memory is a really important part of it. It's more a gestalt, um, in my view. I mean, so I'm not actually scientifically across this area and I wasn't aware of that study. Um, and when they say smaller si- sized spiders, do they mean the same instar. Uh,
0: smaller instars of the same species they never used the same spider later on obviously they would take a young one and then they would they would have to euthanize it young to, to, i can understand
1: uh, in in stars, uh, but there's more to ganglia and nerve cells
0: neurons um and the metabolic costs of of, of uh, i guess growth and all that are, are very different across the instars they did try to control for that based on what they did in 2014 yeah um and uh, but i didn't uh, quite read um all of that uh <laughs> 2014.
1: Uh, that's <laughs> right. Uh, uh, so the question is, um, is it a, a measure of how well older spiders or later instars do compared to early instars or is it a question of… Actual brain size. Uh, yeah, actual brain size, in other words, morphological difference within the same instar.
0: And that's a little bit unclear. Yeah. Uh, Whether or not it's a structural change in the brain or the actual size of the brain within yeah. the creature. And I, th- they, I think they, and they tried look- to control for a lot of those factors um, and that's based on the study design that they talked about from the 2014 paper. Yeah. But um, I would have to go back and read because just saying size of spider equals size of brain and that's, yeah. uh, that's kind I of what think, is driving the result.
1: Yeah. I think that the interesting thing about this is that um, – if you've got more stuff that is capable of doing something it's possible that it's an advantage compared to having less stuff which is capable of doing something but particularly
0: I, the delay time i think right so if uh, yeah. those spiders that were held in the corner for uh, you know 3 minutes if they were small you know it had a huge increase a huge effect on their their search time whereas for Bigger spiders with larger brains, it maybe didn't have quite as yeah. much impact. That, but that again, that could just be their ability to deal with pressure and stress from the blowing,
1: or it could be how important is it to them.
0: Right. Well, again, they tried to. I, I know that they tried to control your, for that you, with the satiation. Yeah. If level. you're
1: in your later Insta, if you're um, if you've molted several times you're actually a survivor and your cohort is, it becomes important to continue surviving and you're more likely to survive. And so you get better at whatever it is that you're doing because um, your cohort, the, you know, the other ones have actually n- no longer there. They didn't survive. So
0: well, it, maybe it was, life
1: is cheap when you're little.
0: Yeah, well, it was the smaller ones that had a, uh, that were apparently a little bit better at discriminating prey size. So they're much more, like when you're little, you're much more keen to go out and get a feed, and then once you get older, you know that you're kind of secure and you already know how to hunt. Whereas the little ones, they they were desperate to get food.
1: But did they were were they desperate to get smaller food, or were they?
0: They they were they would uh, my understanding um, more desperately go for the larger prey size prey item size, right?
1: Yeah, so, big payoff. Yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah. Which which might just be a difference in feeding ecology well, between instars as well. So.
1: I, I reckon what we need to do is get a, like a, a three four five way uh, discussion going with the scientists who did this
0: work. And we and we need that 2014 paper as well. <laughs> <laughs> and we
1: need but but what I think is really interesting about it is the notion of memory that is predicated there does seem to have a bias on human understanding of memory, and I think that the human understanding of memory is flawed. Right. In the sense that Um, how much of what we do in all of our behavior is actually not consciously driven in that sense of recording a memory, so to speak, but just doing shit.
0: Yeah, just autonomous behavior. Yeah, Yeah.
1: and how much isn't. And I would suspect that the way that spiders manage to do things uh, would indicate that they do not have enough grey matter, so to speak, to be able to do what they do. They simply don't have enough brain cells to actually do the computational tasks
0: which they do every day. So they're more working on that autonomous response rather than actual memory formation and information processing.
1: I think what we're looking at is if they did it and it worked, their lineage survived.
0: Yeah, right. Okay, makes sense.
1: Yeah. And if they uh their lineage survived with uh, behaviorally that behavior is kind of locked in um and they don't think about it and in a sense they don't need to think about it they just do it uh so that's so a little uh, they're,
0: they're they're kind of tugging on their web as part of the search behavior is not so much memory use as it is just an autonomous response and stimuli
1: uh i think that it's more that memory use has been separated out from those other autonomous responses or ways of actually living uh, unfairly um, and that a a broader concept of memory uh, to involve behaviour as um, a result of evolution is actually something that could have and may indeed have been... um, Thought about more deeply in relation to that paper, right? Uh, but uh, that said, Porsche, which is one of the most studied animals of all, it is a spider. Uh, it's a North Queensland spider uh, studied by uh, Jackson uh, in particular, but um, it's I think more studied than any other group of animals other than primates. Wow. That is its behaviour, because its behaviour is extraordinary. And so you you take a Porsche spider, which is able to attract the prey um, in its in the prey's web by plucking on the strands of the web to make the the vibrations of a struggling uh, victim, you know, struggling moth or whatever it is. Okay, so how does it know what is the pattern to pluck?
0: Right. How does it know what harmonic frequencies are? Yeah.
1: yeah. And you think, okay, it evolved and it's it's, mum and dad did this. It was a baby. It grew up knowing how to do it, you know, just the way that we know how to breathe and um do all these other things that actually aren't conscious but you know do we have a memory of breathing should we have a memory of breathing? should we think about what memory what part memory plays in breathing you know these are really really complex philosophical and scientific questions actually i don't see a difference between philosophy and science but that's another whole (laughs) whole podcast um it's all natural
0: philosophy we're talking (laughs) about
1: now yeah so what do you do when you relocate at 100 kilometers uh, and then introduce it to the webs of uh, spiders, which don't have even remotely the same prey. It goes and it plays around with its routine. It's not working. Wow! So it starts experimenting. Now, how can it do that? That's incredible. That, how this is really—it does not have enough an, an so enough they, brain power. They have to a small do
0: amount of John Coltrane in them, and just yeah, yeah, wow,
1: yeah, yeah. Actually. Uh, a big amount of John Coltrane.
0: That's that's incredible that they start riffing and improvising on different kind of tunes to try to attract a... That's right. This is
1: their shtick and they, if it's not working...
0: Audience isn't isn't responding, so they move on to a... Yeah, yeah. Giant steps.
1: Wow. That's what we call them.
0: That's incredible. Yeah. So
1: there's an example of um, no spider has a big enough brain to be able to consciously... Think about this and say, mm, I remember that one working. Hmm, it's not working anymore. Hmm, what about jazz fusion? Yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah, maybe use the circle of fifths. Yeah. You know, maybe I can go. Some delayed know. tempo in there. Yeah.
0: <laughs> that's yeah. right. Yeah, right. Interesting, interesting. Um, that's really cool. I will have to uh, look up uh, that particular Porsche paper. That's fascinating. All right, moving many, on Many of now. them. There are a lot. Uh, very, very uh, intensively studied. Definitely. Send me one. I would definitely yeah. love to have a look at that. Um, moving on for now, uh, Fernandez et al., 2018. Phylogenomics, diversification dynamics, and comparative transcriptomics across the spider tree of life. This is in Current Biology 28, 148921497. So, dating back to almost 400 million years ago, spiders are among the most diverse terrestrial predators. However, despite considerable effort, their phylogenetic relationships and diversification dynamics remain poorly understood. So, there's still questions like uh, the ancient orb-web hypothesis. Did uh, all the orb-weavers evolve out of one ancient orb-weaving ancestor, or did orbs... Uh, kind of multiple times appear in a, a, a kind of a convergent evolution um, and the w- idea of like web loss diversification when, when things stopped using their webs and became terrestrial did that lead to more uh, different ways or uh, different niches of ground and terrestrial spiders and did that lead to diversification morphologically in that line all these questions so uh, for the, uh, for this one, the authors took a sy- synergistic approach through phylogenomics, comparative transcriptomics, and lineage diversification analyses. Uh, they performed RNA extractions and san- strand-specific cDNA library constructions uh, as uh, in another paper by Fernandez, that's Fernandez et al. 2014, uh, using new RNA sequence data generated for, that's RNA-sec, RNA sequencing data, generated for 90 species on the Illumina HiSEC uh, 2,500 platform, uh, they used available RNA-sec data uh, from NCBI and eight elicerates as outgroups. Transcriptomes were assembled de novo with the program Trinity using sanitation steps, redundancy reduction, assembly parameters from Fernandez et al. 2014, um, as previously mentioned. Um, interesting stuff here. Um, so for the this is the first time with uh, transcriptomic data for all 17 aeronoid families, um, except the simp phytonathidae, nathidae. Yep. Um, they had really a really rare family. Yeah, right. So a little bit hard to get data on, obviously. Well, we don't have it in Australia. Uh, oh, yes, we do. Uh, I've never seen one though. Yeah. Um, okay, cool. We'll have to look them up and get some more data for them. Either way. And the, they're the, incredibly small. Incredibly small. Yeah. Okay. So that always makes things ha- a bit more difficult mm-hmm. for DNA sequencing and yeah, extraction. Right. Right. So they had uh, a study included around 159 species uh, from which they had around 2,500 genes each. Uh, there were some very novel relationships uh, recovered which refuted most of the aranoid interfamilial relationships proposed by prior extensive work, uh, rejecting the single origin of the orb web, um, saying that, uh, suggesting that orbs evolved multiple times uh, since the late Triassic Jurassic period. Uh, there was no significant association between loss of foraging webs. And uh, increases in diversification rates, suggesting other factors, uh, such as habitat heterogeneity, which we spoke a lot about, um, or biotic interactions, potentially played more of a role in uh, spider diversification than um, just that... uh, loss of foraging webs. Uh, quoting directly from the authors here. Finally, we report notable genomic differences in the main spider lineages. While araneoids, uh, that's the ecribelate acryl- orb weavers and their allies, reveal an enrichment in genes related to behavior and sensory reception, the retrotibial Retrolateral tibial apophysis, RTA clade, um, <laughs> the most diverse araniomorph spider lineage, uh, shows enrichment in genes related to immune responses and polyphenic determination. This study, one of the largest invertebrate phylogenomic analyses to date, highlights the usefulness of transcriptomic data not only to build a robust backbone for the spider tree of life, but also to address the genetic basis of diversification in the spider evolutionary chronicle. Um, so is that something that we kind of suspected uh, more than it, that the orb would be a convergent thing? Now, the um, the authors
1: there, uh, I, I kind of glazed over, but I, I imagine it, they involve um, Hormiga, Gustavo Hormiga, uh, Ramirez, uh, Wheeler, Dimitrov. These are cool dudes. <laughs> <laughs> they are really, uh, they were really making great strides and
0: uh this this is this is a huge step in spider phylogenomics
1: yeah probably the main one that is resulting in the big changes in uh spider families
0: would have been wheeler um Tree of Life stuff. Right. We, uh, we've got uh, Rosa Fernandez, Robert J. Kalal, Dimitri Dimitrov. Kalal, uh, really? Jesus
1: That's A- Gustavo, um, Gustavo uh PhD student. Well, Gustavo Humiga is also in there. Oh, there you go. We've yeah. got
0: uh, Jesus A. Balesteros, uh, Miguel A. Arnido, and Gonzalez Giribet.
1: Yeah, well, they were following. As well on. as, of course, yeah, Gustavo yeah. Amigo, and, and, and previous to, to that was uh, Ramirez, who, who studied the RTA clade and made a lot of big changes. And it's fascinating. This is really interesting that, okay, so they went to the silk. And the use of silk, and they th- found the multiple um, independent evolution of uh, of, of all the, webs of this, of, yeah, of all webs, and um, in different
0: families, in different lineages, and, and makes sense, doesn't it? From what we were talking about before, it's such a successful method for something with uh, that uses silk in such a diversity of ways. To to not use it if you're that kind of uh, off spider seems yeah almost we've pretty, had yeah. plenty
1: of time, you know, so it doesn't. It doesn't surprise me and it didn't surprise uh, Robert Raven either who who uh, has worked with uh, Ramirez over the years and Norm Platon, it certainly wouldn't have su- surprised him. He's kind of like king of spiders at the American Natural History Museum, retired now. Um, the the, the uh, discoveries of the true uh, relationships of the lineages of spider families and uh, even general within them is incredibly important because people were making assumptions about things because they basically put them in the wrong group. Right. And uh, so this is all fantastic work. It, it, is, so,
0: it is so hard with uh, small things and sometimes, I guess, morphologically I hard that, to distinguish to get this phylogenetic data, which really helps. It was DNA, mean, yeah.
1: basically, molecular work, yeah. when we call it. You know, the DNA, we started off with uh, the CEO one you know, mitochondrial uh, gene. I mean, I'm not a DNA expert, but I do know that now you've got 25, 125, 525 important genetic markers that you will now consider when you're doing uh, molecular work in order to determine these things. And uh, so the intersection of dna uh results and morphology uh you know does it have a web does it not have a web you know is it a is it a cursorial hunter or uh, does it use uh its eyesight and its mating process all those sorts of things um and does that run true do those morphological differences run true based on in the terms of dna history yeah and and they found, no, they don't. But what they were finding uh, was Robert Raven and I would discuss these things over many years and say, this is not in the right family, you know. <laughs> and we'd be bitching and moaning about this and saying, I'm really unhappy. Like uh, and um, uh, was, was, uh, Toxopathy was a particular example, you know. Uh, so we're saying how come this isn't a family? You know, it used to be a family once and it's obviously not this other family that they reckon it now is. And Robin and I say, well, you know, it should be elevated. It should be restored. And well, why isn't someone doing that? Well, maybe they will. And, (laughs) of course, you know, um, all those dudes over there, Hormiga, uh, Wheeler, Dimitrov, uh, Ramirez, they started doing that over the last decade. I mean... DNA as the magic bullet is complete crap. You know, it's, it hasn't given us the the, the barcoding uh, wonderland.
0: No, know? it has to be used in conjunction. Yeah, with, um, basically, and it's just ecological.
1: another bit of data, but it's really kind of important data in the sense that it doesn't lie. You can't have the DNA of a different ancestor. It just doesn't work like that. Yeah. So that really helps us. So in terms of phylogeny, it's useful to know what's really happening, where it came from, how they may have diverged, when they diverged. Um, uh, Of course, you know about reticulate evolution. Of course, it's it's like re merging, you know, kind of co- coming back into the lineages yeah. um, from having been separate and, and, and uh, recombining. That gets tricky. Oh, yeah. But um, so uh, that kind of work lays the framework or the, or the is the groundwork for clear understanding of, of, of our fauna, asparta uh, fauna, invertebrates, everything. And I was lucky enough to be in personal contact with all of those guys while writing the book. And in fact, if you have a look at the end of the book, there's a um, th- there's a diagram which shows the phy- phylogeny uh, of of um, spiders. And uh, Gustavo Hormiger, he drew that for me. Oh wow. Yeah, so that is, and that so was- he's,
0: he's he's listed last, but that uh, he'll be the principal investigator on this paper pretty much.
1: The, oh, the Wheeler, Dimitrov, um, Ramirez, and Hormiga are all of a similar sort of rank um, in, in as investigator. He is leg- he is a legend. <laughs> but, I mean, there are a lot of legends in archaeology, yeah, yeah, yeah. but he is a really good scientist, and uh, um, yeah, and he was just phenomenally helpful with my book. Uh, I, I would do the diagrams when initially i said i want to have like a file phy- um a, a, a diagram of the phylogeny and no one else had done it because it was too scary and uh
0: uh like you're gonna make people angry with your <laughs> incorrect phylogeny <laughs> yeah that's right and um
1: and and uh, so uh, I'd send them to him and he'd just send them back with corrections, you know, and basically say, and I said, but we don't have that family uh, in Australia. He said, oh, yeah, fine. And I said, look, I don't have room for all of that detail. He said, okay, fine. And he adapted his diagrams, which were then still correct, but so that I can actually use them in a practical way to show what things were happening in, in, in Australia. And so that came out before Wheeler's paper even uh, appeared before wow. Dimitrov's paper even appeared because these these guys were and girls were just amazingly generous with their with their information and that's something I just love about scientists.
0: Well, that is incredible of them to provide that for your book. I know that there's and no, pictures and the pictures is, and I'm not sure, I'm sure not everybody would be, be as forthcoming. So uh, and also great work on this paper by Fernandez at all. Um, yeah, yes, excellent stuff. Yeah, yeah.
1: I'm trying to look for the uh, Gustavo Hormiga picture of (laughs) the orb weaver that he uh, gave to me. I since managed to get some pictures myself of this little bugger, but uh, it's... You can't put
0: a book together like uh, <laughs> yourself like that, right? You need, you need no, some no, helping no, hands yeah, with the photography yeah, there's, there's, there's and everything. hundred
1: it's... different uh, contributors of, of, of images. But that photo there, that is a Gustavo Hummega photo. Oh, beautiful. And uh, that is an orb weaver that lives 11 years. <gasps> so that is a crazy… That's one of those long-lived ones. Yeah, yeah and it but... doesn't molt. It just lives a long time. Wow. You know, and so… Uh, that's one of the key species that he was using in that study, uh, and and in preceding studies. Like that's not the only paper. I oh mean, no no no! It's 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 one of a suite of papers that have been enabled by molecular work. Yeah. So uh, this is just, it's just uh, one of the later exciting. ones from 2018. What I find really frustrating is that you can't. Just get a little tube and stick it in your microphone um, uh, socket on your iPhone, and sample a spider with it and get a DNA result. <laughs> <laughs> you know,
0: why well, not? there is the mini Ion now. There is a there is a plug-in um, about the size of uh, a small handheld unit that can do um, basic DNA sequencing that plugs into the laptop and i believe they're making one with a micro usb that I, th- I think the mini ion for for smartphone is already out oh i want one no oh, i'll do <laughs> i'll show you a fantastic paper shortly but we have we have one more to go um so uh this is from selden and penny from 2017 imaging techniques in the study of fossil spiders this is uh this is more of a review this is in earth science reviews 166 so background Spiders are the most diverse and important terrestrial predators in the modern ecosystem. Therefore, fossil spiders are fundamental to understanding the past terrestrial ecosystems, especially coevolution with their principal prey, the insects. Being generally soft-bodied, spiders have a poor fossil record. But where they do occur, it's in the exceptional circumstances of a fossil Lagerstätte. By the greatest number of fossil spider, by far the greatest number of fossil sp- uh, spider specimens are found in amber. But earlier than the Cretaceous and outside of Amber, uh, there are rock matrix preservations, uh, which are essential for the spider fossil record. And every, uh, taphonomic situation requires special technique for their, uh, imaging study. So taphonomy is obviously the study of, uh, decaying dead organisms and how they, how they preserve, um, from uh, straight from the authors here, here we review imaging techniques in the study of fossil spiders. Um, so they reviewed uh, amber versus sedimentary rock uh, matrix fossils, which are which are obviously much rarer. Uh, preparation methods for imaging, um, for example, uh, eliminating the optical distortions uh, when amber uh, in amber specimens by immersing them in a fluid with the same refractive index as amber, so you don't get all that uh, you know, refraction off the surface of whatever amber chunk that you're photographing. Um, the history of imaging. Uh, all the way from hand drawing through to digital photography uh, and up to CT scans and much more uh, macro photography uh, and uh, photo which is uh, macro uh, photography, by using a microscope lens and basically mounting a D- DSLR onto the photo tube um, on a tri- trinocular head stereo microscope and, um, Imaging software, scanning electron microscopy, high-resolution, CT, uh, X-ray, <laughs> phase contrast, X-ray synchrotron imaging, um, and all of these things are applied to uh, fossil spiders in amber.
1: You know, the synchrotron stuff is amazing because oh, basically it uh, can tell you what metals are in, in, in an animal. And um, uh, the guy, one of the techs at the uh, synchrotron in uh, Australia um. Uh, there was a dead huntsman on the floor, and so he he you know made in- images of it. And um, sent them to me and said, this is what actual metals, you know, here's your zinc, here's your copper, uh,
0: here's your iron. And you can do that from fossil samples as well. (laughs) So you can know what the old fossils were made of compared to modern ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's absolutely incredible what they can do with that right now. Pretty fantastic. Yeah, yeah. So look, uh, reading straight from uh, the, uh, I believe, the end part of their abstract here. Uh, The earliest uh, depictions of fossil spiders are drawings made with the unaided eye. Light microscopy enabled detailed drawings to be produced, and later, photographs of fossil spiders appeared in the literature. In the 21st century, digital photography revolutionized uh, image capture and reproduction, and scanning electron microscopy has been applied. Uh, recently, to fossil spiders. The most exciting technique, X-ray, including synchroton source CT scanning, is now producing extraordinary images of three-dimensional fossil spiders embedded in amber, and the method is also apl- applicable to rock matrix preservation. We expect to see considerable refinement of these technolog- techniques in the future, as well as the possibility of novel ones. Thanks to the excellent preservation of some fossil spiders and modern techniques available to provide exquisite images of fine morphological details, fossil spiders can now be be considered taxonomically and sub-equal to modern forms hence the usual excuse for excluding fossil spiders in phylogenetic and other studies no longer carries as much weight as it once did and we encourage uh, neo-ontologists to consider the fossil record whenever possible um and and we already spoke a little bit about this uh the uh advancement of imaging techniques yeah um, i love the idea of uh, obviously just photomicrography just attaching a dslr to a to a microscope and then instead of, you know, you having to like hand draw, you just press a button yeah, well, and it takes a snap.
1: Yeah, well, yeah, uh, Robert Raven was a pioneer in uh, using uh, actually, uh, I think it was the um, an early Panasonic that particularly uh, was just perfect for that you know stick it on the front of the microscope on the on the piece that you look down and take a photo yeah. and basically you get what you could see with your eyes i would like to see uh imaging with microscopes that took advantage of the binocular um a, a view of a stereo microscope because what you see you know when you're using both of your eyes uh, for, at slightly different angles is the thing real? It looks looks so amazing, but
0: yeah, more three
1: D the way that you normally yeah. see it with
0: depth perception, rather than as a as a two D image. Yeah,
1: yeah, and uh, most uh, cameras on microscopes, are on trinocular microscopes, so there's a third basically viewing port and a, a camera stuck on that. And it's not nearly as good. So you know, mic- microscope manufacturers, camera manufacturers, ca- get 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 with the program, guys you know there's a lot of, but they you know let's face it um it's not a big consumer part <laughs> it's not really driving sales um this whole amber thing uh is interesting for a whole number of reasons one that it really opened up uh assassin spiders which are in a very um obscure family called the archaeidae um and i think that uh, uh, basically Mike Ricks and Mark Harvey uh, have done a, the, the whole family for Australia which is an enormous achievement yeah and the relatives of this spider are in Madagascar and so here they are in Madagascar here they are in Australia so they date from the actual splitting apart of those two great big
0: Um, lumps
1: of land. Right, so we're
0: talking like Gondwan and Panji and...
1: 80 million years ago, you know. Like uh, when did the zipper finish actually uh, completely unzipping... That is the zipper between uh, the Indian Ocean, the (laughs) the the bottom of Australia and Antarctica, uh, 40 million years ago, 37 million years ago, and uh, and then it's been completely independent as a continent ever since that. That's a long time. Yeah, Uh, but. Um, was it eighty million years ago or before that that the Indian subcontinent went rocketing across the Indian Ocean, yeah. or so to speak, up north there, and then smashed into Asia and caused the Himalayas? Yeah, you know, there's lots of um, things that are still related, and we can and find in the fossil amber, which is wonderful stuff, by the way. Brilliant preservation. The thing's right there. It's <laughs> not. It's not a um, flattened into a layer
0: of a rock. It's no, it's just, in a nice semi-clear <laughs> matrix. That yeah, that's it's right. Just it's holding
1: beautiful form. to see. Yeah. And so, arachid, which are the assassin spiders, these are the ones that use a modified um, cephalothorax or the front of the cephalothorax uh, into kind of like a pelican beak and stab their prey with it. What? And they hunt um, in by spearing. By spearing. Fearing with a modified f- face, <laughs> uh, like like that they've grown. It's like Pinocchio spiders, yeah, right. you know. They've grown a kind of really long, sharp, nose. violent Pinocchio spiders. Yeah, violent, and then yeah, spider hunting spiders again. So the the uh, uh, that that's that's fascinating. All of it again, though, speaks to a really amazing fact that they haven't got enough to do in the Northern Hemisphere. I mean, there are no new species in Japan. (laughs) No new species. Like how many new species have we got in Australia? At least 15,000 by my estimate. Could be, (laughs) you know, double that easily, you know. Come on, guys. Come on down and, and, yeah,
0: come for a visit. You
1: need to look in amber to find something new. No, you don't.
0: (laughs) You You need to look in a Brisbane backyard bush. (laughs) That's absolutely right.
1: And there's no new species in Germany. You know, uh, Barbara Bear d- described, she uh, works uh, out of Queensland Museum. She, she, the one of the last ones ever described genuinely from Germany, Alenie Fired, she described it, you know, and that's before she came out here and described, uh, what, there were four uh, Tomopsis in her solidity, um, she had a look around Australia while on holiday and found another 50 species, <laughs> you know, while on holiday. Yeah, and right,
0: while she's having some time on. <laughs> yeah,
1: that's right. Oh, she loved Australia and she loved – she lo- Emily Dietrich, you know, um, she was r- r- doing explorations around about the top, time of Ludwig, uh, Ludwig Leichhardt, you know, 19, uh, 1837, so – If you read her, stuff about her, she said, I love this place. Every morning I can get up and I can just go for a walk and find something incredibly new and different and interesting, you know, every day. And and so that doesn't change. So, you know, get with the program, guys. Come down. (laughs) Come on down to the Southern Hemisphere.
0: That's Rob White officially putting the call out on for any uh, (laughs) arachnologist to come out and uh, give him a run for his money. That's right. <laughs> All right. Well, look, that's, uh, that's the end of new research for now. Um, we are pretty much going to have to wrap it up. But we do have uh, one more treat uh, that uh, Robert White has brought for us today. Um, we have two copies of his book, a field guide to spiders of Australia, uh, plus the postage as well. He he left us a bit of cash, uh, to send them to two lucky listeners who can answer the following question. Uh, what are the current names of two spider species on pages 250 and 251 of Robert's book, a field guide to spiders of Australia. Now, um, a little hint, Robert was one of the authors responsible for a 2019 taxonomic paper, renaming these spiders. Uh, the names had, uh, not new names. They are synonymies, synonymies, uh, since the spiders had already been described under earlier names. So the authors had to go back to those uh, synonymous names that had previously being used. So the uh, prizes here are signed copies of the third printing of a field guide to spiders of Australia reprinted with some corrections in 2018. Um, and, uh, Many of you who also know Robert may have seen him on some of his frequent TV appearances and may be thinking that an even more exciting prize would be one of Robert's big, beautiful bug shirts. Um, I don't think he's parting with them, um, at least not until he passes away. So, you know, maybe the benefactors of his estate can put them up for some kind of auction for charity. (laughs) (laughs) Yes,
1: certainly. When I appear on TV, I mean... Uh, I get a fair amount of attention for spiders, but I also get a fair amount of attention for the bug shirts. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful shirts where we, we, we seek out this incredible fabric from uh, these obscure places on the internet. Uh, Spoonflower is one of them that, um, where you can actually get fabric from old um uh, illustrations
0: of of uh of, of invertebrates so those are all basically old hand drawings of yeah. Uh, invertebrates.
1: yeah yeah this would be a, a plate in a in a scientific book oh and wow that, and that and that's how they drew them then before cameras you really had to actually oh you <laughs> had to be good with the pencil yeah absolutely you had to be really good so um these uh are jumping spiders and uh, the genus is Hyperblemum. We were intending to change the genus, but we figured, nah, there's not a justification for that. Uh, and we so, expect- what are the species names? People? Yeah, what are the species names? Pages two fifty 250 and two fifty one. Yeah, and uh, you will be able to look at the World Spider Catalog, which is located in Switzerland. And Switzerland has very um, progressive copyright laws about scientific material. And so if you join for free, um, the world, the, become a member of the World Spider Catalogue group, wow. then you get access to every single paper ever written on any spider ever.
0: That is incredible.
1: Yeah. So uh, you can find this paper, which has my name on it, uh, as well as my co-authors, and find out the answer to that. Send it into. I guess you've got an email address. Yeah, mes- it-
0: messages directly on Facebook at Wildlife Cake and Cocktails, or find us on Twitter WCC underscore podcast, and send us a DM there with the answer to the question to go into the running uh, to win uh, one of two copies and
1: signed it. by both authors.
0: Oh, signed by both order, both authors. That's uh that's fantastic. So that's uh, Rob White and uh, Greg Andrews as well there. Really fantastic, fantastic stuff. And uh, so where, well, what was the name of that website again where people can jump on the World Spider? The
1: World uh, Spider catalogue, yeah. World Spider catalogue. Just Google it and uh, they'll see um, it basically comes up and there's a search, very simple website but incredibly uh, thorough and it's run as a
0: kind of cooperative venture of all of the uh, arachnologists across the world awesome awesome also check out at qld museum and uh the australian arachnological society.org for more about australian spiders um thank you so much robert this has been uh, amazing obviously there's so much more that we can uh we could talk about we might have to do it again um uh, where, where can people catch you online uh you're obviously on twitter at robert white uh, jolt when do, when do we get more jolt science coming out Probably
1: as a result of new expeditions. Yeah. So with the Kalula people at Rainbow Beach, uh, they've got funding for three more terrestrial and two aquatic uh, bioblitzes. And so...
0: Those aquatic bioblitzes are going to be amazing.
1: Yeah. So um, that just generates so much fun stuff. Yeah. And so we make videos, interview, you know, talk to people, uh, film our activities and then put it up online and... uh, Uh, I think there isn't one until next year. The next one will be in 2020. Yeah. So it's occasional. There isn't kind of a schedule uh, every six months or so. There's just when stuff happens and it's uh, jolt worthy. It's going to jolt you into a new dimension
0: you know <laughs>
1: shock you to your uh to your bones then uh we put it up there
0: excellent excellent well keep an eye out for it everybody and um i think we're gonna to have to wrap it up there guys uh cheers again for joining us this has been an awesome spidery halloweeny episode we're gonna have a few more of these uh spider bite martinis and uh cheers guys uh hope you enjoyed we'll uh we'll be back soon and send those answers in uh dm us on uh, twitter find us on facebook and uh yeah cheers best of luck everybody